Welcome to The Yarn, a school library journal production. I'm Colby Sharp. Uh, I've been waiting for this book, The Joy of Reading, by Dr. Terry Lassane and Donalyn Miller for a long time. I can remember when they started writing it seven years ago, and I remember all of the different twists and turns it has taken along the way. And friends, the book is worth the wait. It is so good. It is a gift to our profession. It is a gift to the readers we serve. It is a book that so many of us need right now in a time where joy has been stripped away from our kids. Joy has been taken from teachers, and things are really heavy. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Donalyn Miller about writing the book, about working with Terry, about her hopes and dreams for this book. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Donalyn Miller. Donald Miller, tell me about The Joy of Reading. The Joy of Reading is really a compilation of all of the conversations, workshops, blog posts, articles, phone calls, lunch meetings that Terry Lassane and I had over a decade. Uh, all of our grand conversations, plans, ideas, thoughts about what we believed engaged children with reading and what obstacles may prevent that engagement from taking place. On the back of the book, it says, here's the truth. It is possible to teach children how to read well without killing their love for reading in the process. What does that mean to you? Well, you and I have been teachers for a long time, Colby, and we've seen it happen. Yes, we've seen it happen even with our own children sometimes. Mm. No matter how much we try to raise readers at home, I know with my two girls, I could see their love of reading start to slip away as they moved into middle school and high school. And I often wondered, you know, even with a reading culture at home, even with strong, perhaps elementary teachers that encouraged reading, as a middle school teacher, I often saw many middle school students in my sixth grade class who were also disenchanted with reading. And I, I wanted to know how that happened because many of the children that I knew had had positive experiences in the past, but it didn't keep them reading as they got older. And and I wanted to know what was going on. You know, talking to lots of kids and really digging in with them about why they moved away from reading or why they didn't feel reading was something that they would do outside of school, why they would find it enjoyable. I think lots of conversations with kids of all ages informed this book and, uh, and, and the kids told us, you know, that uh, we give them too much stuff to do in school. We attach too many strings to their reading. We try to control it too much. Uh, we don't have books that they want to read. They don't have time to read. They don't have access to the reading, uh, reading material outside of school, on and on. Uh, in some ways, Terry and I felt like we were just taking all of the voices of the kids we had talked to over the years and trying to put them in one place and have the kids tell teachers, administrators, and librarians what, what they felt about reading joy and, and what they felt about uh, a lack of reading joy and, and, and opportunities that they were provided at school. Um, why did it take so long to write this book? <laughs> well, you know, Terry and I signed the contract for the joy of reading in 2014. The, the first 
file I have in my computer is labeled the engagement manifesto. And uh, there were really two reasons, I think two main reasons why it took us so long. One is that about a year into the process of writing the book, I, I, I moved away from the classroom and, and became one of Scholastic's reading ambassadors. And I loved that job. I got to travel all over the world, really, talking with teachers, librarians, and kids about what engages them with reading, what, what prevents reading engagement from happening. I'm still learning a lot. But that job put me on the road over 100 days a year. And, and I'm not very good about riding on the road. I, I know colleagues of ours who can do that and do it well, but that's just not me. I, I don't know if I just feel vulnerable and I need to be with my books and surrounded by my pictures of my students and where I feel I can write about them. Uh, so that job made it very difficult for me to keep any kind of writing habit. But then also about three years into the process of the book, Terry was diagnosed with cancer. And when that happened, I didn't care about the book anymore. I didn't care if we ever wrote it. All I wanted was for my friend to get better. And, uh, and so for a couple of years, we didn't really work on it that much while she was in treatment. And we would talk about it when we would get together, but I certainly wasn't going to talk to my friend who's in chemotherapy and say, you know, what would make you feel better right now? Let's go work on that book we've been messing around with for, you know, three years. And so, you know, it also really, Terry and her recovery back, and she wrote about this, Colby, in the very last post that she ever wrote for Nerdy, she wrote about how hard it was for her to read as a result of all of her treatment and her illness. And for a long time, she couldn't even read, much less write. Uh, the pandemic, believe it or not, uh, gave us an opportunity to finish the book. And I was not traveling anymore. I had left my scholastic job by then. Terry was teaching virtually from home. Her cancer was in remission at that time. And, and we were able to spend a big chunk of 2020 and, and 2021 finishing it, really working on it. And then Terry got, became ill again in um, the, the summer of 2021. And then, as you know, we lost her last August, mm -hmm. just a few weeks before the book was due. And, uh, I'm, I'm heartbroken that she's not going to see it because she worked so hard on it. And she also was such a fierce advocate for kids, for teachers, for librarians, uh, the right to read. And I think she would be proud of the response the book is receiving. But I also feel an incredible um, sense of honor uh, for being the person that got to write her last book with her mm -hmm. and uh and be the person that maybe even gets to introduce her to teachers who didn't know who she was yeah mm. so it's been what five or six years since you left the classroom for scholastic and mm -hmm. now you're working independently mm -hmm. um so one of the things that I admire about you is when you go to conferences and into schools, you are not only teaching, but you're always learning. Um, you're at a conference, you're not only presenting, but you're also attending sessions and learning and continuing to grow as an educator. Uh, what is one thing that, I guess two things here, what is one thing that you believe even more strongly about as a teacher of reading and what is, since you've left the classroom, and is what, what is one thing that you've learned from all the people you've been able to talk to and learn from? 
One of the things that was really emphasized to me that I, I think I knew when I was a teacher in a classroom, but I didn't understand what a pervasive systemic problem it is, uh, was the lack of access, just the general access to reading material that many kids don't have. And I, I, I didn't know about book deserts really before I left the classroom and I didn't know uh, you know, I've always been an advocate for choice and uh, people who know my work probably know me as the lady who talks about choice. But I've come to understand and I've often said now, choice is a privilege that depends on access. Mm -hmm. uh, when we send kids home and tell them to read whatever they want and put it on their reading log, we presume they have something to read at home. Uh, when we, when kids show up in our classrooms in August and they tell us they didn't read anything over the summer, we're judgmental about you know, they're, they're caregivers. Why didn't they take them to the library? The library is free. Instead of digging in with our families and really trying to figure out what the tangible obstacles to that library use might be. You know, I was that teacher when I was a new teacher. You know, my sixth graders would come in, they hadn't read anything, and I would be frustrated with them. Why didn't they go to the library? You know, there are real obstacles that prevent many families from accessing the public library in our communities. You know that from your own mm -hmm. community. And, uh, and I don't think I realized uh, what a big hurdle that was for so many families and able to uh, just to be able to provide reading material for their children. We can talk about engagement all day long. I don't care how great your summer reading launch is. Uh, kids are not going to read if they don't have anything to read. Uh, the other thing I think that I, um, I have really learned is that a lot of the challenges that we have in engaging kids with reading are put at the feet of individual teachers, librarians, and administrators to solve. And I've traveled to so many schools, they're often the schools who want me to come, where the administrators are literacy leaders, where they have a vibrant reading culture at the school, or they're trying to launch one. And yet that is an opportunity that I believe should be offered to every child. And it just isn't. Uh, kids need reading advocates every year of their lives. I've heard you say this, you know, yes, they need teachers who are excited about the solar system and they need teachers who are going to teach them how to divide fractions, but they also need a reading champion in their lives every year because that affects every aspect of their lives. And I, I think I just feel even more strongly that kids need that. Why is this work so important to you? Like you could just, you could do anything as a teacher, you could be in a classroom, but why is it so important that you're willing to travel the country, eat conference, banquet, chicken, meals, stay in hotels, layovers? Like why is this so important to you that you are willing to make it, I guess, your life's work? Oh. That's a big question, isn't it? I grew up in a low income family and my husband did too. And we were not really kids that anybody thought were, were going to make very much of themselves. We, we didn't have the resources, honestly. But my husband and I both loved to read when we were kids. And we both believed, Don and I, that we read our way out of that, that we read ourselves to an education that we, to kids who never really had vacations, who never really traveled, who never went to camp, you know, that we were able to travel around the world and through time in the books that we read. 
And we knew how much that added to our childhoods. We also knew how much it added to our educations. And I mean, my husband's first book, Colby, he got it from the Riffmobile. You know, he was living in rural Oklahoma and he and his friends went on the Riffmobile because it was air conditioned. <laughs> it's hot in the summer in Oklahoma. And they went on the Riffmobile and my husband got his first, the first book he, he owned uh, from the Riffmobile. So it's very personal to the two of us. We, we also were two kids that sat in high school classes, bored out of our minds, spending eight weeks reading Call of the Wild or To Kill a Mockingbird, while we read our own books out of our desk and waited for the test. And we knew that if we weren't keeping our reading lives going, school wasn't going to be doing it during those years. So I, so I think all of those things have, have informed my understanding of the power of reading and the power of reading that it could have in a kid's life. And, and, and honestly, I know I've written now five books. You and I just finished, uh, you mm -hmm. know, the fifth book that I've co-written. And I feel like in some ways it's, it, it doesn't warrant five books, this conversation. I'll say that it really is time, access, choice, encouragement. That recipe you and I've seen in classrooms turn kids into readers, kids who are excited about reading uh, in that reading community that we've built. And I, I will talk about it until I can't talk about it anymore. Um, yeah. What brings you joy these days? Well, I'm moving and that is both <laughs> a stressful and joyful experience. I'm actually, my computer's on a box right now while we're recording this. Fortunately, we still have Wi-Fi. I, I, my husband and I are empty nesters now. Our kids are grown and we're moving, downsizing our entire house. And one of the things that is really giving me joy is sending so many of our books mm all across the country to other teachers to other kids to other families i met a colleague of mine in a parking lot last week and just filled her trunk full of books and i knew that she was going to get every one of those books into the hands of a teacher or a kid it's full circle really for us you know the kids who grew up with almost no books who had to feed ourselves off of our library cards are now emptying entire bookcases into boxes and sending them to other kids. It just seems like um, a miracle somehow. Mm. Wow. Well, I guess I want to end with the question, what is your hope for the joy of reading? Oh, you know, Every teacher I know, every librarian I know, every parent, every kid, every administrator I know is battered, bruised, sliding into the summer uh, after two really hard years at school. And joy is not in big supply right now in a lot of places. I, I know that reading won't solve all of our problems. I'm not naive, but I do think it can help. And I, I hope, honestly, I hope that the joy of reading can help some teachers, librarians, caregivers rediscover their own joy of reading again. Because I know with my whole heart that if you're not engaged with reading, you are not engaging a child with reading. You, you can't engage them with something that you yourself are not passionate about. And I think that's where it needs to start. I hope that the teachers that read it 
rediscover themselves as readers so that they can go out and do that work, that, that joyful work of connecting kids with reading. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Yarn. Thank you to Daniel Miller for taking the time to chat with me about the joy of reading. Thank you to Philip Stead for creating our theme music. Additional music for this episode comes from the Free Music Archive. Thank you to my friend and co-host, Travis Yonker, for helping me produce this episode. Travis, I hope you are enjoying your summer vacation. Thank you all for listening. My name is Colby Sharp. I hope you have an awesome, fantastic day. <laughs>